Well, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 9. I'll read verses 9 and 10. It says there, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Now, Paul is saying the words here, what we just read, as a way to convince the Colossians that they do not need to set their hopes on worldly wisdom or useless traditions or the empty ceremonies of men. Of course, he's following that from, he's getting that from verse 8. He says in verse 8, if you read that, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy that is empty deception. It's a worldly wisdom. According to the tradition of men. So that's useless traditions. And according to the elementary principles of the world. So that's empty ceremonies rather than according to Christ. Now, the question uh, for us at this point is what would it have looked like for the Colossians to turn to philosophy and empty deception or the traditions of men or to the elementary principles of the world. What would it have looked like for them to do that? Well, um, if they would, for example, to begin with, uh, out of those three different kinds of, of, of ways of being deceived, if they would have, for one, swallowed the lie that human reason can answer questions that only divine revelation can answer, then they would have fallen into the trap of philosophy and empty deception. Uh, we mentioned last time that whereas philosophy in the ancient world did accomplish some good things, the moment that philosophy sought to answer ultimate questions about where we came from, uh, about what is the end of life, or what is our destiny, the moment that philosophy ventured into those areas, then that was the moment in which it went astray. Because at that point, it was answering questions that only God, through divine revelation, can answer. Now, we said also that this, this is the same thing that happens with science today. Science accomplishes very good things, generally speaking. But science really does make for a very poor God. When men turn to science to answer questions that, again, only the scriptures can answer, well, they even become irrational. They end up saying that we, for example, accidentally exploded into existence. That's ir inherently irrational. They end up saying that a member of the opposite sex can act or be uh, a member of the opposite sex if they just decide that. They end up saying that human life begins when you want it to believe. Those things are inherently irrational. Uh, they can also try to create drugs to solve spiritual problems, try to handle soul problems through physical means. In other words, the one who tries to be wise through the wisdom of the world, Scripture is clear on that, ends up being a fool. So Paul is telling the Colossians here, as we even saw last time, don't do that. Don't go into that. Uh, He's also telling them to avoid go, getting into the traditions of men. And what would that have looked like? If they would have swallowed that lie, what would that have looked like? Well, the Jews, for example, allowed things that 
uh, and commanded things that contradicted the scriptures, what the word of God said. So if you decided that, they, that, that you were going to live by those traditions, the traditions, for example, of the elders, then uh, if you're going to give yourself wholeheartedly to obey that, then you, will, you would inevitably end up going against the, the teachings of the scripture. They had to see the Bible as their final authority. And of course, you can, this has always been a problem. You can fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. And the formal principle behind the Reformation itself was the question of whether the Roman Catholic Church has the right to place decrees and canons and uh, such laws like that above the scriptures, uh, make pronouncements that contradict scripture. But again, the point is that scripture has to always be the controlling principle in our lives and the final arbiter of every religious question. The Westminster Confession of Faith really summarizes that well. It says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient, ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. That was really a summary of the, of the, the Reformation's view of of the scripture and how we are to handle the issue of human tradition pitting itself against the Bible. You always go for the Bible. And Paul wants the Colossians here to have that same spirit. They, he wanted them to have the spirit of a Berean. Uh, and don't rely on useless, unhelpful, we said last time, anti-biblical tradition. Now thirdly, if they would have fallen into the errors that Paul is warning them again against, uh, the third error was empty ritualism. And what would that have looked like for them to fall into empty ritualism? Well, the false teachers of Colossae wanted the saints really to observe the ceremonial law of Moses. They wanted to get back into the dietary laws and the ritual cleansings, etc. But we said last time that all of those have been temporary. They had been set in place only until Christ came. They were a kind of yoke holding people in place until the Messiah came. And they were set free once Messiah came. They became, at that point, obsolete. They mean nothing. Why are you still going back to those things? Paul is telling them that to observe dietary laws and ritual cleansing cleansings was completely unnecessary and even counterproductive because then it distracts you from the real issue, what God really wants from you, which is heart obedience. And we said last time that you could go uh, create your own kind of religion with all these empty rituals and, and you focus on that and that gives you a kind of sense of religious accomplishment. And at the same time, the things that God is saying to do, you're not doing but you're being self-deceived because you're saying, but I'm doing this. And Paul's saying, don't go there. Hard obedience. God wants obedience rather than sacrifice. So he's telling them, don't set your hope on wisdom, on tradition, and empty ceremonies of men. Don't do that. That's the message that Paul is driving at here. And in verses 9 and 10, he's going to focus on the reasons why. 
And his argument really has two parts. On the one hand, he says, you don't need to set your hope in the wisdom and tradition and empty ceremonies of men. You don't need to make flesh your strength because Christ himself doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need to be supplemented. That's the, the, the one side of the argument. Christ is perfect. Christ is enough. Look at verse 9. He says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The Him here, of course, is Jesus. And specifically, Paul is talking about the man, Jesus of Nazareth here. He is speaking of Jesus from the standpoint of His humanity. And he's saying, that man over there, I know there are all kinds of men, all kinds of teachers, but that man over there... He has all the fullness of deity dwelling in him. Why, why are we talking about fullness of deity? Well, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that he's not just talking about a part of God. Right? Some part of God. As if you could divide the, 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 the divine nature into pieces. In fact, not long ago, uh, in the Southern Baptist denomination, I don't know, don't know if you guys were aware of this, but... Uh, the man that they elected as, as president, uh, Ed Litton, I think this was 2019, 2020, it was very recent. Uh, he had a statement on his church website to the effect that the persons of the Trinity are each part of God. Uh, which is profo a profoundly heretical view. Uh, because the scriptures insist on the idea that God is one. You can't divide it. Deuteronomy uh, 6.4, the Lord is one. Uh, and James says that even the demons understand that God is one. You can't divide him into pieces. There's no such thing as a fragmented deity. God is not even the sum total of parts. The divine nature is one. You can't divide it. And there is no other. So... Uh, and by the way, this, when, when this all came about, the church just scrubbed their website and uh, that was it, sadly. But uh, where the divine nature is, it is in its entirety. It's there undivided. And, and Paul is making that point when he says that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. He doesn't have a piece of God. He is all of God. So you say, okay, so what does he mean by in bodily form? What is that, ex what is that expression doing? And the answer is that he, he's trying to be very clear. He's trying to set uh, Jesus by, on a category by himself. Because if you think about it, Scripture for one says that God is everywhere, right? Uh, scripture then says in uh, the Old Testament that God dwelt in Zion. Uh, scripture said that God dwelt in the temple. Scripture says that God dwells in believers, and so how are we going to differentiate between Jesus dwelling in me, which is true, and the Son of God dwelling in the man Jesus Christ, them being, uh, or, or there being one man who is, in fact, the Son of God. So uh, Paul says, he dwells in him in bodily form. He has himself assumed humanity. We call this the hypostatic union. Jesus is a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, who has taken up human nature. He is the God-man. So, when we talk about the author, the leader, the substance, the end, the climax of the Christian religion, 
We're talking about a man who has all of the divine attributes. He has the entire divine nature. The fullness of deity dwells in that man. Not in a, in a, in a sense of he's been adopted by God, right? Some early church heretics believed that there was a man named Jesus of, of Nazareth who is adopted by God and now he has God in him. No, that's not what we mean. Adoption is what happens to believers. No, we're talking about a union of the second person of the Godhead taking on a human nature. He is not a human person. If he were adopted, he would be a human person. He's a divine person that has a human nature. But the implication that Paul is trying to draw here is that if that man over there has the fullness of the deity, that means that all of the power of God, all of the wisdom of God, all of the majesty of God, all of the love of God, all of the compassion of God, all of the eternity of God, all of it is in that man. And here's the implication that if Jesus, again, is the sum and substance of the Christian religion, if he is our prophet, our priest, our king, and if he has all that there is to be had of God, then it follows that he is complete. He doesn't need help from outside. He doesn't need help from flesh. He doesn't need the great philosophers or the great scientists to come and make discoveries for him. To give him insight into mysteries that he himself might have missed. He doesn't need religious gurus to come up with human traditions that might be able to be used to sanctify men better. He doesn't need either sacrificial systems of systems of penance to add to the atonement that he makes. Because when he sheds his blood, he sheds the blood of God. The blood was sufficient to pay any and every penalty that any sinner might owe to the divine majesty. In other words, Christ is perfect. He doesn't lack anything. And this has obviously massive implications for us. Again, Paul, what he's doing in these verses is he's saying again, you don't need to set your hope on wisdom or tradition or the empty ceremonies of men. You don't need to make flesh your strength, Colossians, because on the one hand, Christ is perfect. Christ is enough. And on the other hand, this is going to be the second side of the argument. You are one with him. You are in Him. That's the other side again of Paul's argument. That the believer is in this sufficient Savior. Look at verse 10. And in Him you have been complete. And He's the head over all rule and authority. That, that phrase in Him, by the way, appears over 140 times in the New Testament. In Him you've been made complete. The, the New Testament writers use those two words... In Him, to express the idea of the believer's union with the Lord. That when you come to Christ, you become one with Him. So, for example, you read statements in the New Testament to the effect that you've been crucified with Christ. Right? You read statements in the New Testament that you have died with Him. That you have been buried with Him. That you've been raised up with Him. And that even you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. So, Scripture insists... That to be a Christian is to be so united with that man who has the fullness of the Godhead that you cannot even tell where you end and he believe and he begins. 
He's your identity. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been buried with Him. You've been raised up with Him. He is you. You are in Him. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's a deep, 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 indescribable union. We can, we can refer to that union between Christ and the Christian as organic, legal, and vital. Organic, legal, and vital. So we say that it's organic in the sense that he's the head and we are the body. And that means, of course, that not only that he's our leader, but also that he uses us as his hands and feet to accomplish his purpose in the world. So you can say that union is organic. On the other hand, we can say that the union also is legal. And that's expressed through the analogy of a husband and wife. The, the, the union between a husband and wife is foundationally a legal union. Husbands have duties toward their wives. Wives have rights over their husband's bodies. And those privileges are dissolved only by death. Now similarly, salvation is spoken of in contractual legal language. All throughout scripture. After all, we are in a covenant with the Lord the new covenant so if we've believed in the Lord we are his servants he is our God he will save you he will sanctify you he will meet all of your needs he will never part with you unlike husbands and wives because he can never die and you cannot never die because you're in him so if you're joined to Christ you're joined to Christ in a similar way that a wife is to her husband. It's a legal union. So it's an organic union. It's legal. And the third one, we might say it's a vital union. It's a life-giving union. And that's illustrated by the picture of a vine and branch. That branch receives life from the vine. The branch cannot bear fruit unless it's nourished, strengthened, empowered by the vine. And in the same way, we receive our vitality from the Lord. John fifteen five. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So, it, it is through Christ that we can live unto God, that we can desire righteousness, that we can follow after righteousness, that we can kill sin, because we are connected to him. He's our identity. No wonder Paul says here in verse 10 again, In him you've been made Complete. Complete. That verb there means to fill up. So he's saying your cup has been filled to the brim by virtue of your union with, with Jesus. So you don't need guidance in your life other than his guidance. And, and, I, and I mean that at a foundational level. Of course, if you have a counselor come and help you, there's a strength by a multitude of counselors. The question is, when that counselor speaks, is he speaking according to what Jesus would say? Again, at a foundational level, you have no need other than Jesus Christ. You don't even need supernatural guides. And that's why Paul even adds the expression here in verse second half of verse 10. He says, He is the head over all rule and authority. By, by head, of course, he means king or ruler. And the reference to rules and authorities... Here, I believe, is a reference to angels. Uh, you can look with me to Ephesians chapter 1. 
uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, He raised him from the dead and seated him. This is the Father, raised the Son from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. And seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the ascension. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named only in this age, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then if you flip over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says there, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 22, it says, He is at the right hand of God, again ascension, having, come, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, to be sure, we always say that the Son of God is God incarnate. Okay? So, uh, as God, we say that he has always been over the angels. The person... Uh, the second person of the Godhead has always been God over the angels. So as far as His divine nature goes, there has never been a time where, when God the Son became lower than the angels. Right? That would be impossible. He upholds all things by the word of His power, even uh, the angels. Nevertheless, remember that we also speak of the second person of the Trinity as the God-man. That's another category, the God-man, God and man. And as God and man united together, Christ certainly needed to conquer death before He could be glorified and raised up above every earthly power. That was the agreement that He had entered into with the Father from eternity. He needed to provide an atonement for His people. He needed to defeat death, to conquer death. And He did it. And once He did it, then the God-man was exalted above the angelic realm, exalted above, above the mightiest creatures in all of creation. And because He is so far high above all things, then we ourselves don't need the guidance of angels into religious mysteries that the Lord somehow was himself not privy to or that he was left out on. So you might remember that the Colossians at this point, they were being tempted to go after angels, right? And to even worship them because they might be able to provide some insight and some, some help religiously, spiritually, that maybe Jesus could not do for you. Maybe the angels have secret knowledge that he isn't giving, but but they will, and they are, being, they are being tempted to go through the angels and to have their faith supplemented by the angels. And in fact, that's not all that different, even from the religions of the world today. It's interesting to me that both Muhammad and Joseph Smith, founders of Islam and Mormonism, both claim to have started their religion after some encounter with an angel. But the, the fatal assumption there in both cases is that you could add, that an angel could add to the Lord's work. That they could somehow reveal things that Christ could not. That's why Paul is saying, by the way, Christ is the head 
over all rule and authority. The prophet, priest, and king, with whom you are one and are have been united with him forever, he is mightier than the mightiest creature in all of the universe. He is over all of them. So he surely is sufficient to meet all of your needs concerning salvation and the worship of God. Christ is enough. I mean, again, the culture could put up its best wise men. Society could conjure up the finest traditions. Humanity could gather up its loftiest rituals. And none of them would ever be able to add a hint of value to the work of Christ or even to reveal secrets that somehow lie beyond the Lord's capabilities these things cannot happen because the fullness of deity dwells in the man, Jesus. And Paul is saying, and we are in Him. So we ourselves have all that we need. We are complete. And really, the takeaway for us tonight in all of that is that we need to be thankful people. And we need to praise God for His goodness in giving us Jesus Christ and leaving nothing out. Just by giving us His Son, He has given us all things. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for that reminder of His sufficiency that we have all that we need in him we worship you and we pray that you would give us to trust in him and to rely on him and to find him a sufficient and worthy savior and we ask in his name amen